0: I firmly believe that, especially a professor of religion, can't leave themselves out of the classroom. You have to bring who you are there because your students can see you. They know that there's something there. There's some well of enthusiasm that you're bringing to the table, and they want to know where that's coming from.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief, and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking In Good Faith today with Dr. Ravi Gupta, a scholar of Hinduism. He currently holds the Charles Red Chair of Religious Studies at Utah State University. Ravi, thank you for being a guest.
0: It's a pleasure. Very good to be here, Steve.
1: Previous to that, you received a Ph.D. from Oxford, and we like to mention you were 21. I don't know if you're tired of people bringing that up.
0: <laughs> I'm sure even when I'm 70, people will be talking about that. So I don't mind, though. No.
1: <laughs> and currently, for this semester, you are a visiting scholar at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship here at Brigham Young University.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Here's my very first question for you. Some people really love music, but then if they become a professional musician, it robs a little of the joy. Is that same in faith? If you begin to study your faith, do you lose something or is it just expanded?
0: That's such a great question to start with. You really hit the nail on the head in terms (laughs) of the whole experience of being a scholar and a practitioner or disciple in one's own tradition. I mean the answer to your question is yes for some people but it fortunately hasn't been the case for me. I've really come to grow deeper both as a scholar and as a practitioner of my tradition. It's been an incredible journey with some twists and turns and but the joy has grown I think over time. I'm really happy about what I chose as a career path, as a personal path. Sometimes, as I'm in the classroom and students ask difficult questions that have no straightforward answers, or I'm seated in my office talking to a student who's going through a difficult time in regard to the questions of faith and reason, I think, you know, it would have been perhaps a little bit more straightforward to be a professor of mathematics. That was one of my undergraduate majors uh, because the questions we deal with in religion never seem to have easy answers or answers that everyone can agree about, mm-hmm. even at the undergraduate level, right? Which is, in all my math classes, at the undergraduate level, the challenge was to understand what was happening, not to question the truth of it. I'm sure that happens at more advanced levels, but not at the undergraduate level. For us, it's a daily challenge. It's, it's like struggle in one's own life and in the lives of our students. But I wouldn't give that up for anything. It's why I go into work every day is to live what I teach, essentially. Would you have guessed this career path as a boy in Boise, Idaho? <laughs> um, no. As a child of Indian immigrants the career path that was the most obvious one, the most stereotypical one, was to become an engineer. And if not an engineer, a doctor or something of that nature. I was very fortunate to have parents, I am very fortunate to have parents who were very open to the idea of their son choosing a path that most Children of immigrants don't because it's a much less clearly defined path to stability economically and and personally. So I didn't even know that this uh, existed as an option. But I think there were a number of things that looking back now, knowing what I know now, would have pointed in the direction that I am here today. But Not at that time, no. I wasn't really. In fact, when I was in my teens and my parents were looking for a graduate school where I could study Sanskrit, which is India's ancient language, they visited um, Harvard University and met with the person who was then chair of the Department of Sanskrit. And he looked at my parents. My father was in Boston for a business trip. And he said, do you realize, Mr. and Mrs. Gupta, that you are the first set of Indian parents who have ever come to me looking for a place for their son to study Sanskrit? And do you realize, moreover, that if he becomes a professor of Sanskrit, you will be feeding him for the rest of your life? (laughs) And uh, my father was really quick at that. He said, no, I've got a younger son who's An engineer, and he can feed him. (laughs) But that younger son, my younger brother, Gopal Gupta, he today is also a professor of religious studies at University of Evansville in Indiana. So, and I'm happy to say we're both feeding ourselves.
1: Good. From what I've read, you're in the Vaishnava. You can help me with the terminology because Hinduism is so broad. It's so ancient. How does that distinguish from the other groups?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Steve, that um Hinduism is a very broad tradition. It's better to think of it as a family of religious traditions where different groups are very closely related, well, some more closely related than others, just as in a family. I belong to a branch of Hinduism called the Vaishnava tradition, and Vaishnavism focuses on the worship of Vishnu or Krishna, and there are many different avatars or descents over the ages. So that too is a broad tradition, but Vaishnavas are quite a few in Hinduism. Some people count half a billion. Again, it's difficult to come by firm numbers on these things.
1: As a young man, what kind of daily or weekly practice was there in your family? Because I'm assuming at that time of history in Boise, Idaho, There wasn't, for instance, a temple or anything like that.
0: Actually, there was a temple. And the only reason there was a temple is because my parents ran the temple (laughs) in Boise, Idaho. Good for them. Uh, Yeah. And in many ways, uh, that was um, a defining feature of my childhood. It was a big part of what made me who I am today. It was also an unusual childhood in many ways because the temple grew as I grew up. And I grew up in the temple So we had quite a rich culturally, religiously, very rich life. Um, Once a week, we opened our home. So it started off in our home, uh, not as a separate facility. We opened up our home uh, for people to come to worship and to socialize and gather and to share food together once a week. And as that space became too small for the Indian community in Boise, Idaho, We had to buy the property next door to our house and gradually build a separate temple facility because our house was just becoming overrun with people and activity and so on. Uh, And so I spent a good chunk of my childhood and youth explaining to others who I was and what I believed in. And this meant we, as a family, we were invited to just about every major cultural occasion that event that took place in in Boise. Everything from the opening of the Anne Frank Memorial to interfaith Thanksgiving services to other sorts of interfaith events. And we were the, the token Indian family, the token Hindu family. Sometimes we were representing all of Asia. And in that process, I came to really learn how to take what I practiced, what I lived, and express it to others who knew nothing about it. And I think it's that process of constantly expressing myself and finding how I related to whatever circumstance I was in, I think it was that process that eventually, in hindsight, led me to becoming a professor, because I became incredibly comfortable with being myself and bringing myself into a situation, while at the same time not making myself the story, right? Being able to present what it was that I was gonna talk about in honesty and in a balanced way. And that's essentially what a professor, a teacher has to do in the classroom. I firmly believe that a professor can't leave themselves, especially a professor of religion, can't leave themselves out of the classroom you have to bring who you are there because your students can see you. They know that there's something there. There's some well of enthusiasm that's you're bringing to the table, and they want to know where that's coming from. Um, at the same time, you can't make yourself the story in the classroom. You have to teach what you're teaching with fairness and with balance and with critical thinking. You have to be able to call things out when they're not good or when they're not right. So it's all of that. I think that— That's a really good practice for anyone with their faith. (laughs) Yeah, and my childhood in many ways, it really helped prepare me for that, the way in which my parents kind of uh, allowed us and encouraged us to interact with our community.
1: A few quick questions. Is the temple your parents built still there?
0: Yes, it's still there. It's still flourishing. My family has taken less of an active role as my parents have aged and as I have moved away and my younger brother. But we're still very much involved, and we really are proud of the way in which it has flourished over the years. And
1: were there any difficult things about being a believer in a predominantly
0: Christian community? Well, I mean, Boise is and was a very— welcoming place. I can hardly think of a better place to grow up. And this is part of the reason over the years of my career, I've been teaching now 15 years full time, I've found a way to come back to the Intermountain West is because I just, this is the place I want to raise my children to. So there's no real complaints. I guess if there's anything difficult, I think it was always the fact that you were the outsider, you were the guest at the table, and to this day, if someone asks me randomly, "So where are you from?" Ravi?" and I say, "Oh, I'm from Boise," which is one hundred percent absolutely true. It's the earliest memories I have, and it's still home. If I say "I'm from Boise," the answer is always, "Oh well uh." Where are you actually from, Ravi? And I know that's not what they were getting at, right? But it's always that sense that you're you're the guest at the table. And the wonderful thing is that if I'm the guest, my hosts were always so gracious. So there's nothing really to complain about when your hosts are gracious, except for the occasional time when you don't want to be the guest. <laughs> you want to be the family member.
1: Well, I'm really glad to hear that. I wonder if you could talk to me about maybe beliefs or practices that you hold most dear in your tradition. What connects you to the divine or gives you faith to keep going on?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a wonderful question, Um, a deep one. Um, For myself and different practitioners in my tradition, we'll find different things to connect to. But there's a couple of things that I would say connect me most deeply to my tradition. The first, I would say, is reading, listening to the scriptural texts, the wonderful works of literature that we consider to be scripture, particularly a work called the Bhagavata Purana. This is a work of philosophy. You've actually done a translation. I have. Yes. It's a translation published by Columbia University Press. That was just done a few years ago, but this is a work that I've been studying my whole life. It's a work of philosophy, and it's beautiful poetry. It's good literature. And so it's not often that you find a work that is both intellectually stimulating and emotionally and poetically satisfying. Uh, these two qualities don't come together easily in a single work. But the Bhagavata Purana does have that, and it's written in Sanskrit, which is a language I absolutely adore. It's so beautiful, uh, very, very precise and and, um, systematic. And so that process of study and of savoring, relishing what I read, I think gustatory metaphors are the only way to properly describe. Feasting on the scripture. (laughs) Exactly. And then the second thing I would say is um, the process of kirtan, which is singing together or sometimes on one's own. Uh, sometimes just with the voice and often with musical instruments. But that process of singing and playing of musical instruments, of praising God through song and through recitation of His names, again in Sanskrit, that um, has been something very special for me.
1: I think it's so interesting to have grown up myself in one tradition, to hear about another, and of course I'm looking for similarities similar ways of feeling about feeding others serving others perhaps my family or the connection i have with god but it leads me to wonder if i start hearing stories about krishna and arjuna and some of the adventures then i decide well this clearly is not literal this is representative this is symbolic and i think well then it's only fair for me to look as you said to think critically about your own tradition to sort of wonder about the same things, about Daniel and the lion's den, or the whole earth being covered by a flood, or whatever it might be. Does it matter to you?
0: That's a great question. Um, I've thought about this question a lot. And let me put it this way. In the Vaishnava, or maybe even the broadly the Hindu traditions, the question of locating something at a particular moment in history is not as pressing or as crucial as it is often in the Abrahamic traditions, and particularly in Christianity, traditional Christianity. Uh, The reason for that is because most Hindus don't see history as moving in a particular direction. Time is cyclical. It moves in circles. Mm. The same kinds, or maybe I should say in a spiral, things do change. It's not like we're living in Groundhog Day again and again and again. (laughs) But it's the same sorts of events keep taking place. Time cycles move like seasons throughout the course of a year. In the same way, the universe moves through cycles. And so locating exactly where something is at is not as pressing or crucial because history is not starting at a particular point and ending at another point. And more importantly, God is not necessarily working through history. He enters history as an avatar, does what he wants to do, and the individual's journey may be linear, but not the journey of history itself. And so whether something happened in this cyclical time or the previous age or the last time the universe was created and demolished, that for a Vaishnava, for a Hindu, is less important. It's not that Hindus or Vaishnavas don't consider their scriptures to be real, to be true, to be historical even, but it's not as much of a pressing question. More important, I think, is asking the question of truth in terms of, is this, in fact, the nature of God? and this Is this, in fact, the nature of who we are? Is this the natural order of things? And that's dharma. That's the word dharma. That's how religion is typically described by many Hindus, and especially by many Vaishnavas. Do you
1: think or understand God differently now than, say, 20 years ago?
0: Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I don't know how much God has changed, but I've changed (laughs) a lot in 20 years. And I think it's that journey of—I think a lot of the, you can say, the building blocks of faith are the same. But the fact of having experience in life and in the world, what it means— to take care of children, what it means to raise a family, what it means to struggle in different ways, what it means to enjoy your successes and to suffer through difficult times. All of that changes a person and it certainly changed me in very deep ways. I think as a result of that, my faith has changed shape. It's deepened and there's more of a sense of comfort of security in the relationship between me and God. It's kind of like, you know, in the early days of a marriage where everything is so exciting, there's this sense of euphoria as you fall into love, yet there's just this sliver of uncertainty there where I don't quite know her, and especially in an arranged marriage like I had. Or you're discovering new things or does she like my jokes or not you know and there's all this slight uncertainty there but as you age together after a decade or more of marriage you come to realize we love each other very deeply to a point where it sometimes it's not even necessary to constantly reassure yourself of it because you're just there you can be together and i think something similar happens in our relationship With the Lord where initially there's this sense of excitement and euphoria as we discover new aspects of who God is and how he works in the world and so on and then there's a sense of over time I think we know each other pretty well he knows me and I know how he works and yeah I can tell he's not gonna be straightforward about this he never has been but it's okay. This is something I can live with in our relationship. And I know not only can tolerate, but I actually love about him. Right. So I think it's in that way, faith has changed for me over the decades.
1: Mm. A few of my friends who are Hindu have a guru. I don't know if they chose the guru or the guru chose them, or it was a little bit of both. Is that the same for you? Yes, indeed. And is that an important thing in the life of a believer?
0: I would say definitely. Uh, the, the various Hindu traditions, including the Vaishnava tradition, place great emphasis on the importance of having a, a guide, a teacher who can help us walk the path, who can point in the right direction and uh, show us when we are veering in ways that can be harmful or over-enthusiastic or whatever it might be. That person can never do it for us. We still have to walk that path on our own. And our experience will not be identical to theirs. And yet, it is essential, in fact, according to the Hindu tradition, to have a teacher to guide us.
1: So was there a process for you in finding such a person?
0: Yes and and no, in that as a family, we have a teacher. I was born into the tradition that I practice and with that tradition comes a lineage of teachers. Mm. So specifically my own tradition is that of the Hare Krishnas. So this is a a phrase that refers more um, systematically to a branch of the Vaishnava tradition called Chaitanya Vaishnavas. Uh, These Vaishnavas come from a teacher 500 years ago called Krishna Chaitanya who lived in Bengal in the eastern part of India. So our tradition descends from him, but in the West and now around the world, we're colloquially known as the Hare Krishnas because of the mantra that we chant, the Hare Krishna mantra. And in fact, here in Spanish Fork, there's quite a large temple of the Hare Krishnas.
1: Yeah. I've been there for kirtan uh-huh. and with my family to chant, to dance. It was wonderful. Of course, we eat there also, their, their <laughs> yes. vegan restaurant. But, but also to go there... On January 1st, it's a little tradition I have to go and with the beads Hmm. and say the prayers. I don't know. It it helps me feel like this really is a new something, a new year or a new way of thinking. Anyway, yes, that's a lovely place. I'm glad you're connected there.
0: That's wonderful. That's great to hear.
1: You mentioned that you change having children. And sometimes if I really think about it, it boggles my mind that I even exist because I think – How many people had to at least survive long enough to have a child for this twisted tree of descendants that I show up? Mm. It also makes me think of my children as part of something way bigger than just they're my kids,
0: Mm.
1: which changes how I want to teach them. What has being a father done for you as far as either teaching religion to your kids or in how you think about your faith?
0: In so many ways, uh, it's changed me. It's helped me develop in that regard. I would say um, in um, Hinduism, it's said that there are several debts that we incur just by living, just by walking the earth. And one of the greatest of these is the debt to our parents. The only way we can repay that debt, it is said, is by having children of our own. And there are various you know, technical reasons why this might be the case. But I think the main reason is very deeply personal, which is that we cannot really appreciate everything our parents went through until we go through it as a parent ourselves. And I think one way in which having children has changed me is that it's helped me deepen my gratitude to my own parents and everything that they went through, all the worrisome sleepless nights that they must have had in the way that I have when anything anything little goes wrong uh-huh. with my children. So I think in just being a more grateful human being, in being a fuller human being. I think having children has been amazing. It's been wonderful. The other side of things, I think, is just this phrase, my children. I've come to both appreciate and question the word my, because, of course, they're my children. And of course, they're my responsibility to help them grow up into two young, fine men. But at the same time, in so many ways, they're beyond me in that when they were first born, the two of them, see, before I had kids, I thought babies were kind of generic. You know, every baby pooped, and every baby cried, and every baby needed love. And when I had my children, the first and then the second, I came to realize they are unique individuals from the moment of their birth. There are so many things that are not similar about them despite the fact that they're born from the same parents into the same house in the same environment with the same kind of upbringing and yet there's two totally different individuals who will no doubt have their own paths going out into the world and i have so little control over that all i can do is help them grow and become what they're meant to be to flourish and reach their potential but not control Who they are. And there's a big difference between supporting and controlling. And I think one of the biggest things that you learn as a parent is that you're not the controller. You might start off thinking, this is my family. These are my kids. And I'm going to do things the way I want them done. And you quickly realize, no, I'm not the controller. I'm not the doer here. I'm the facilitator. I'm the supporter. I'm the cheerleader. And I need to help these people become who they are meant to be and who they want to be. So I think that's helped me grow in my own faith because isn't that what we are meant to learn in this world too, right? That we are meant to learn in our relationship with God. That I'm also not entirely the controller of anything around me, that In some ways, faith means being able to put your hands up and say, I seek refuge, I seek shelter, I surrender, and I'm open to what the Lord sends my way, right? And what better way to learn that than with your own family, with your own children?
1: Have you had moments when you thought, I don't need any of this. I'll just be a good person. I'm not even sure. Or was that just never in that path that you've walked?
0: I don't need any of this This meaning.
1: A particular faith or religion. I,
0: I think my faith or my religion has been so much part of who I am on a day-to-day basis. It's so much part of the very fabric of my being that it's difficult to distinguish the two. It's difficult to find a moment in time where I made a choice. I tend not to think of religion as sort of a a marketplace that metaphor is sometimes used today of a religious marketplace where religions are like uh, different types of pasta on a shelf you've got the penne and the rotini and the farfalle and it's all the same stuff durum wheat semolina but somehow it tastes different when it's in different shapes it does <laughs> 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 and and you could choose whatever you like for dinner right that's a very modern way of thinking about religion it's not a traditional way of thinking about religion, I dare say, in any tradition around the world. And for me, I resist a marketplace metaphor of choice. Not that I don't believe in choice. People should have the right to choose whatever tradition they want. But I don't like the word choice because it makes it seem like it's pasta. And religion is not that. It's, it's who you are. It becomes part of your very being. And so I can't think back to a moment where I thought, I'm going to choose to be a devotee of Krishna. Or I don't feel like being a devotee of Krishna. Let's make a different choice. Even in a tradition like Hinduism, which has a lot of different deities, right? that's never been a question for me. It's Krishna is part of my life in the way that my parents are part of my life, or my children. I didn't choose my parents. I don't really have a need to... Make a choice now. They are who they are, and I love them for who they are. Um, in the same way, Krishna is who he is, and I love him for that.
1: I wonder if seeing those two sons of yours be so different right from the beginning with the very individual personalities, is that evidence to you that some part of them has come from somewhere?
0: Definitely, and particularly as a Hindu, as a Vaishnava, where we believe in reincarnation and rebirth. This has not been our only life that we've come around many times. From a few weeks after their birth, when I saw the difference in their personalities and their natures, I came to recognize they're really coming with different journeys. And somehow their different journeys have brought them to the same point for just a few years until their journeys again take them in different directions. But how lucky I am to somehow be that point where they both meet— with all of our journeys, right? So I definitely, Steve, I would say that they've come from elsewhere and and very different places.
1: You mentioned an arranged marriage, which is one thing if you live in a society where that is completely the norm, but perhaps another thing where that's not happening to the people all around you. Was that just a natural thing because you were raised expecting that so I would say that was— And I don't even think this is maybe connected with faith. This might be cultural.
0: In many ways, it's cultural. In many ways, it's connected to faith. It's difficult to separate culture from religion, as as I'm sure you realize. For me, an arranged marriage was part of my upbringing, but also in many ways a choice. Growing up here in the United States, I recognize that the vast majority of people don't go through an arranged marriage. And so that was certainly there, present, as an option. But for me, I saw my parents' example. I saw all our extended family and relatives. I saw the various ways in which an arranged marriage brought many good things in the process of getting married, in a married life, the sense of commitment that's there. And I decided quite early on that this was something, a route that I wanted to take. And it's been wonderful. It's worked out very well. In fact, there's a professor at BYU I was just talking to today, David Dollaheit, in the family—what family, family what is it called? The Department of Family Studies or F- something like that. Family Sciences? Yeah, okay. who's done a very interesting study of arranged marriages as they happen in India and arranged marriages and uh, you can say typical, you know, American marriages and found that the rates of success in a marriage— And he's got various ways of defining that. Don't differ all that much between the two of them. In many ways, an arranged marriage brings a lot of benefits. In other ways, the non-arranged marriages do. But it's a way that works and brings a lot of good things to it. I should mention that sometimes people equate arranged marriages with forced marriages. And these two things are very different. Mm. Arranged marriages can be forced marriages, and they're terrible. When two people are forced to marry each other against their wishes, that's just not right. And uh, there are many, many things that can go wrong there besides the slight to human dignity that happens there. But an arranged marriage, as it's practiced in the right way, is not a forced marriage. It's a bringing together of two families who decide to come together of their own volition.
1: Very nice. I'm just thinking of a few arranged dates I had, and I decided my grandmothers knew nothing about me. (laughs) Indeed. indeed. I, I might have trusted my parents more. I wonder if I could shift gears, and I wish we had so much more time. It's really delightful to speak with you. At one point, I believe you gave a presentation here on campus, Sacred Rivers, Sacred Trees. And I read that at least before COVID times, and I don't know if this may have changed, but at one point, you wanted to start a project on Hindu ecotheology in conversation with Christian environmental thought. And I wonder, from Hinduism, and maybe separate from Eastern philosophy, what is the view of the earth and the creation, and how is that different from Christian or Western thought?
0: So I hope I write a book about this one day. And in fact, part of what I'm doing here at the Maxwell Institute currently is thinking through this project and reading widely, talking to colleagues here about what it means. There are so many ways of answering your question, but I'll just say a couple of key things. One is the idea of the world as a personal place. What I mean by that is, that we have a tendency in our modern world to think of the world as resource right as a place of resources, places where we can take what we need for our use. So we're the subject, the world is the object right And the Vaishnava tradition pushes back strongly against that and says human beings are subjects they are active, they're thinking, they're feeling, they're persons, but so is the rest of the world. Everything from the rivers to trees to mountains, not to mention animals and plants, all of these are persons, perhaps not with the same capacities that human beings have, but nevertheless with the ability to relate to each other and to other species and to ourselves in very personal ways. And so even to this day, if you go to India and you asked, you came to a village with a very special tree at the center of the village, like a banyan tree, for example, you would find the tree decorated with various cloths and different colorings and honored at various occasions of the year. And if you went to anyone in the village and you asked them, who is this tree? They would not Bad an eyelid, even for a moment, they wouldn't look at you like you were really funny. The question that makes sense to us is, what tree is this, right? That's the question we're used to asking. But the question of who places personhood there. Hmm. And that's a very common question. Rivers are regarded as goddesses, for example. Now, there's limits to how we can approach nature, how much we can approach nature in this way, in our contemporary world. And yet I think it's a very important shift of mindset that we have to consider very closely. To what extent is our objectifying of the world causing us to treat it in a way that is leading to its pollution and to its destruction?
1: The very thing that has supported us and given us life and a place to live. Exactly. I wonder if you have a favorite passage, a favorite line or scripture from, help me pronounce this, Bhagavata Purana? Yes. Is there something that's uh, like a favorite line or a favorite moment or something that kind of encourages you or you just like to keep in mind?
0: Yes, definitely. And
1: can you share it in Sanskrit?
0: (laughs) I can. I'm happy you asked. So... I think one of the most beautiful and defining verses and difficult verses of this text, which is 18,000 verses long, is the very first verse. And it goes like this in the Sanskrit. Janma <speaking> adyasya yatonvayad itarathash <in> chartheshvabhignya <Hebrew> swarath Janma <speaking> adyasya yatonvayad itarathash <in> chartheshvabhignya <Hebrew> Tene ne brahma, ridaya adikavaye, suraya. Tejo vari, mredam yatha venemayo, yatratrisar gom risha. Tejo vari yatha venemayo, yatratrisar gom risha. Dhamna svena sada nirasta kuhakam, satyam param dhima hi. Dhamna swena, sada nirasta kuhakam, satyam param dhima this verse is four lines long. I repeated a, a, a couple of lines for musical effect. And uh, it's in a Sanskrit meter. It's a metrical pattern called shardula Vikritam, which is a particularly long meter. And the, the name of the meter means play of a tiger. And it's got a very solid yet very playful rhythm to it. The verse is quite long, technical, and philosophical. But the one part of it that I particularly like, that I've held dear for a long time, is the phrase vedyam vastavam atravastu shivadam, which means, or one possible translation of it is, knowledge is reality distinguished from illusion for the welfare of all. Okay, I'll repeat that. Knowledge is reality distinguished from illusion for the welfare of all. Now, my life is all about knowledge, teaching, learning. And knowledge is so often taken to mean information or fact in our world, as if if you did a Google search, you would get knowledge. But this phrase defines knowledge as so much more than that. Knowledge, first of all, needs to be real. It needs to be factual. It needs to be true. Reality, distinguished from illusion, that which is deceptive. Okay, that makes intuitive sense, I think, to pretty much everyone. But that's not enough. For something to be true, to be real, is not enough for it to qualify as knowledge. It must also be for the welfare of all. It must be for the benefit of others. And I think that is so crucial for our world today. Do we not live in a world where there are so many things that are possible and true, and yet not necessarily good and salutary? We live in a world surrounded by all kinds of technology, for example. And that technology is true. It's real. It can do amazing things. And yet, the question we have to continuously ask ourselves, is it good for me? Is it good for the world? Just because I can do it, should I do it, right? And this phrase, this beautiful phrase, reality distinguished from illusion for the welfare of all, I think helps bring... Those two aspects together, the factual, the, the ontological, and the ethical, that they have to live together for us to flourish in the world.
1: That's sort of like being a disciple scholar. <laughs> <laughs> it is like you do. What a beautiful verse. What a beautiful description. Thank you. Ravi, is there something I should ask you that I don't know to ask, or something that you would really like to be sure you include that we might not have covered?
0: Well, I'd like to say a little something about uh, my experience with interfaith work and my experience with various religious traditions. I think one of the things that my own practice of the Vaishnava tradition has instilled in me quite deeply is the idea that in all things ultimate, there must be many. We think, we often feel that the more important something is, the less of it there must be, and the more rarefied it must be, and that in matters of ultimate there must be only one, one true book, one true religion, one true God, etc. But for a Vaishnava, in many ways it's the inverse, that the higher you go, the more significant, the more important something is, the more real and true it is, the more of it there must be, the more you should be able to see that truth everywhere. Because truth is sat. That means in Sanskrit, that which lasts, that which exists and persists. And if it lasts, it will not just last in one little corner somewhere. It will be spread throughout the world, throughout creation. And so as I ask this question of truth that we were discussing earlier, for me a big part of that is saying, If this is going to be true, if it's going to be real in the deepest sense, then it must be present elsewhere. And when I find it in another tradition, that is a moment for joy. That is a moment of not insecurity, but confirmation of being even more stable and secure in who I am and what I practice. And if I can't find it elsewhere, that's when I need to worry. That's when I need to ask myself, is this something that is just part of the cultural vicissitudes of my own past and my own little part of the world that I am taking for truth? And so I think that's something that's been always very important, both in my upbringing and in my practice, and my study of the world's traditions. That's one thing I wanted to mention. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is how crucial being a teacher has been in my path. A lot of people, or at least some, enter academia. They become professors because they're interested in study, in the subject matter, in research. And teaching is a necessary burden that they must take on. But for me, it's never been the case. For me, life is very much in the classroom. I work as a professor because of the opportunity I have in the classroom. To engage with my students, to help them come to understand a subject that they might not be familiar with. And for me, there's always been a phrase that's been very inspiring in my work as a teacher. It's a phrase that I learned from one of my senior colleagues many years ago at a different institution. He had this on his door, actually. He said, The job of a professor, of a teacher, is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And it's in that process of helping my students see what they think they know and realize that actually they don't know it anywhere with the complexity and depth that they should know and take what they think they don't know that is so unfamiliar and exotic and odd and help bring it closer until they realize, actually, this is not all that unfamiliar. That even in this unfamiliar experience, of people on the other side of the globe, in a religion that is so different than mine, there's some common humanness there, right? Being able to do that in a way that is balanced, that is fair, and that is critical, that's what keeps me alive. That's what keeps me excited and joyful. That keeps me going as a professor even after 15 years of full-time teaching.
1: Dr. Ravi Gupta is a scholar of Hinduism. He currently holds the Charles Red Chair of Religious Studies at Utah State University and, for the time being, is a visiting scholar at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University. Ravi, it's been a delight. Thank you for speaking with me today in good faith.
0: Thank you so much, Steve, for having me here. It's really been a pleasure talking to you.
1: That's our time for today. Thanks to Dr. Ravi Gupta for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you enjoy the show, be sure you leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. All of our episodes are online at byuradio.org/ingoodfaith, and our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.